What's up, everybody? Happy Friday. It is another beautiful day here in beautiful, sunny Miami Beach, Florida. I'm coming from you live from my office here. And we're going to do another broadcast to talk about commercial real estate uh, and all the fun stuff that comes with it. I'm your host. My name is Michael Maccabee. I'm the CEO and founder of MTIP Commercial Real Estate. We're a brokerage firm as well as a syndication acquisition firm. And I take my personal time on Fridays to spend an hour with you guys to discuss uh, very valuable, what I think is valuable content that I think is not spoken enough enough about in the industry. Um, and I'm glad you guys are here. Hope you guys are benefiting from all the content that we're trying to provide you. And also to discuss our MTIP University, our platform for education. For those of you guys looking to get into the commercial real estate game or just up, you know, upgrade your talents in the commercial game uh, or re residential game as well. Today, our topic of discussion that we're going to be discussing today is going to be real estate terms, key real estate terms for underwriting, uh, and I'm going to discuss what that means, underwriting real estate. Above me, we got these little freckled little dots, chicken pox. Each one is a subject matter, a term that we use a lot in the business. I mean, there's a lot of terms that, uh, that go get thrown around in the real estate game. But in commercial real estate in particular, there's these recursive words that people keep using. And I think it's very, very important for anyone trying to uh, start a career or enhance their career to understand these basic terminologies, to be able to understand the lingo so people can take you a little bit more seriously and you can also catch on when two professionals or a group of people are talking, um, you know exactly or you know a little bit better about what you're, they're, they're speaking about. So without further ado, I'm going to hop right into it because it's a lot of content we're going to cover, all right? There's, what is this? 15 subject matters, 15 words we're going to talk about. Um, I'm going to try to get through everything. If I don't, I'll definitely try to do it on the following week. But here goes nothing. So I'm going to start in matter of order here and talk about the, the, the most basic of terms. When you're looking to buy a piece of real estate, okay? Last week we discussed comping, and uh, which basically means you're taking similar properties um, and I recently sold and you're evaluating, you're doing these averages and statistical analysis to be able to determine a value of what the subject property, the property you're trying to acquire, refinance, list, whatever it is, uh, what it's worth, right? Before doing an appraisal or taking it to a, uh, a more uh, professional level. Um, today, we're really going to talk about more of the, the components of underwriting a cash flow or an income producing property. So there's real estate, um, what it's worth, the shell, the building, the land, the price per foot the, of uh, land and building or the price per unit. But what happens if there's income being produced or what happens if you want to see income, projected income? What is it worth based on income? And so a lot of the real estate terms we're going to cover today are really revolve or live around the idea of income producing assets. Okay. Um, the first word that we're going to cover is called the gross scheduled income. Okay. 
GSI. And throughout this entire lecture today, we're going to basically cover it in three points. I'm going to talk about a definition, the purpose of it, how to calculate it, its formulas, and then I'm going to give an example. And that way, hopefully, you guys will be able to better educate yourselves when you listen to this again on what these terms mean. Okay? So here goes nothing. Definition and purpose. The gross scheduled income, the GSI, or sometimes called potential gross income, the PGOI is the acronym, is the annual income of a property if all rentable space were in fact rented and all the rent collected was there. In short, it's the maximum potential of income without any regards to vacancy and credit losses. And for those of you guys who don't understand what vacancy and credit loss is, I'm going to cover it. It's one of the actual terms. But in short, it's basically if the, if the building was vacant or a portion of it was vacant, right? Additionally, gross schedule income is just an estimate. It's not an exact number. It's a projected number. In reality, you should be reminded that you need to subtract out the vacancy and the credit loss in order to convert this term, this potential rental income, to actual rental income, which is called GOI or gross operating income. Okay? The GOI is real. It's what you really collect. So whatever approach you end up using to state the gross schedule income, you'll then need to apply the vacancy and credit loss to adjust it to get the GOI. Okay? So hopefully that makes sense. As far as how to, uh, to calculate it, right? What's the formula for GSI? You gotta count the total rent being payable under an existing year. So all the rents that could possibly, if you have one unit, 15 units, 100 units, doesn't make a difference. All of the rents, okay, that could come in, the highest rental rate, right? You wanna look, at the, if you don't have existing tenants there to take as reference, then you might look out in the marketplace, see what, a similar space would rent for, and then use that as a reference to then calculate the total rent that you could collect in that property, okay? So you're estimating that. And then you're gonna add all of that, as well as any potential side incomes, right? Like if you're talking about a multifamily laundromats and I don't know, signage in a commercial site, you might be collecting on any potential income, you're gonna add all that together. And basically, that's how you get your GSI, your scheduled, your gross scheduled income. That's the formula, simple enough. So an example is, let's say you take a property with four rental units on it, right? Two units are occupied and leased at uh, $20,000 a year of income coming in. The third unit is occupied and rented for $22,000 in income a year. And the fourth unit is vacant, but has the capacity to generate $22,000 a year. So... If you understood what I said before, what would be the gross scheduled income? Unit number one collects 20 grand, okay? It's up here, for those of you guys watching. 20 grand, unit two, another 20, unit three, 22, and unit four, another 22. So it's the vacant estimated value. Together, you just add them up together, you get $84,000, and that's your gross scheduled income. This is a very basic term. It's like step one, right? You need to know how much income is coming in when you're underwriting a deal to understand the next thing we're going to talk about. So, uh, I spoke about vacancy and credit loss. Let me jump in and explain that. So, 
You guys know a property, obviously, could have vacancies. It's not always fully occupied. You could end up seeing a warehouse and it's empty. The potential of a tenant could be there, but currently it's vacant, all right? So a vacancy is the potential rental income that is lost due to the space that lies unoccupied or due to non-payment of rent by tenants, okay? That's a credit loss. You'll use vacancy and credit loss to reduce the gross scheduled income, right? What we talked about a second ago, you're gonna reduce it from that to give you the actual term called the gross operating income, G-O-I, okay? There's G-S-I, there's G-O-I, scheduled and then operating. Those two differences, the difference between that is that vacancy, okay? So a real, uh, excuse me, a number of real world factors can uh, be considered for vacancy and credit lot losses. If the rents that you charge are less than other tenants must pay for corporal parties, then it's reasonable to assume that no one will ever leave because they can't get a better deal anywhere else. If a particular location experiences a very high demand, vacancies may disappear until future developers build more stuff and create more opportunity. If they build too much space, then vacancy can swing in the opposite direction and supply then goes uh, over the demand. So depending on the predicament, vacancy could really play a huge factor in the opportunity you're trying to buy. So how do you calculate the vacancy and credit loss? You take your gross scheduled income, which you just talked about, okay? And then you take an estimate. Most banks, right, when you want to go get a, a loan, we're going to talk about mortgages, they're going to add this estimated vacancy as a percentage. Generally speaking, in commercial real estate, they'll take anywhere between, let's say, an average of 5 to 10% uh, from your gross scheduled income uh, and apply that as the actual amount of the vacancy and credit loss. So I'm going to give you an example to better illustrate that. So let's say your property is fully occupied and has a gross scheduled income of 84000 you estimate that you should allow for 5%, right? The bank would give you 5% credit loss. How many dollars of revenue do you estimate to lose? So you take your 84 grand, right? That's your GSI. You multiply it by 5%. That's your vacancy and credit loss. And you get $4,200. So that's the, the let's say the, the missed opportunity is $4,200. So. Hopefully that basic term makes sense to you. You got your GSI, you subtract your vacancy and credit loss, and then it gives you the GOI, which we're going to talk about next. Okay, so jumping into it, GOI. And I hope you guys are keeping up because it's a lot of information. And if you do not uh, understand it, play this video back when we repost it. So GOI, gross operating income that I talked about just a moment ago, uh, it equals the property's gross annual scheduled income less the vacancy and credit loss that we just spoke about. GOI is not the property's potential income, but represents instead the actual income you expect to collect a year on a gross level. To understand this real estate metric, it is necessary to first learn about gross scheduling, which we just did. Then you should implicitly understand GOI as it's simply the difference between the two amounts, the credit loss and the vacancy. Okay. 
I'm, I'm sorry if I sound redundant, but I want you guys to understand the difference between these very, very similar sounding terms um, uh, that a lot of people don't know or just assume, oh, it's just the income. In real estate, in commercial real estate, if you want to sound professional, if you want to be taken seriously as a practitioner, you got to know these simple differences. Especially if tomorrow you want to go sit and talk in front of a sophisticated investor or the banks. This is, the, this is their lingo. Okay, so the formula again is GOI, is GSI minus vacancy and credit loss. That's it. It's very basic, very simple. I'm going to give you a quick example just to recap it. You have a property, it's fully rented, and it takes a revenue of $5,000 per month. You expect a vacancy and credit loss of 3%. What is your GOI, right? So your monthly rent is five grand. You have to multiply that by 12 to get your annual gross uh, scheduled income, right? Everything is on an annual level. You got to multiply it when they give you a monthly rate, just FYI. So that's 60 grand. So your GSI is 60. Your credit loss and vacancy is 3% of that 60,000, which is 1,800, which would then, if you subtract your 60, excuse me, the 1,800 by your 60, you get your GOI, your gross operating income. And in this example, it's 58,200. We spoke about GOI, GSI, and vacancy and credit loss. Now we're diving into net operating income. Net operating income, okay, is one of the most critical terms you're gonna use in, in real estate, in commercial real estate in specific, all right? The NOI is a property's income after being reduced by vacancy and credit loss and all of the operating expenses, okay? So that's the new key term here, operating expenses. When this is calculated, we will use the current sum of the operating expenses and subtract it from the total gross operating income, the GOI. The NOI serves as a, as a representation of the property's profitability before considerations of taxes or any kind of financing, so debt service, any mortgages. That's a key thing for you guys to pay attention to. Perhaps it is easier for readers to think of this term in terms of the number of dollars that the property is going to be able to return in a given year if the property was purchased for all cash um, and if there was no consideration of income and of its income taxes, excuse me, or depreciation, which we're going to talk about too. NOI is going to be the one of the most important calculations, guys, that you will ever make when it comes to any real estate investment. NOI rem remains at the center of almost every discussion that a landlord will participate in when it comes to the future of their property, okay? Critical term. In order to calculate the NOI correctly, you must be clear about what is and what is not considered an operating expense, okay? So this is, I'm, I'm gonna show you guys an example, I'm gonna give you guys the formula, but let's play this back and understand the difference, right? The GSI was all the rents. The GOI was all the rents minus vacancy and credit loss. The NOI is the GOI minus operating expenses and not including debt service, the mortgage, okay? That's what NOI is. So let's give you guys the actual formula for it, okay? NOI, again, equals GOI, gross operating income, minus operating expenses, okay? And and operating expenses, um, we're gonna show an example and explain this. Uh, hope, hope doesn't really show it, but I'll explain it in short. 
Let's give the example of if you have a property with a scheduled gross income of 100,000, that is the GSI, and a vacancy and credit loss of 3% of that. The total operating expenses is 35,000. What is the property's net operating income? So if you read the question correctly, right, they're giving us the GSI, they're giving us the credit loss, with those together give us the GOI, the gross operating income, um, and then they give us the expenses. So it's really doing the math of the GSI to get to the GOI, and then subtracting the operating expenses to get the NOI. So this gross scheduled income is 100 grand, the vacancy and credit loss is 3%, which is $3,000. The gross operating income then is $97,000 as a result. You take the operating expenses, you subtract it by the $97,000 and you get $62,000 and that's your NOI, okay? So I'm gonna give you guys some quick examples of operating expenses because this is a, an important term, okay? Like things that are considered operating expenses are your property management, your uh, supplies, your vendors that you pay, uh, accounting, legal fees, I don't know, landscapers, um, things that are you pay in order to operate that business, utilities, okay, common area fees, um, I'm blanking out, but it's pretty much anything you need to operate the building, okay, or the asset without, just keep this in mind, it's everything except depreciation, it's uh, without uh, your debt, your mortgage, you can't include that in the calculation, so whatever your mortgage amount is, is not a part of your NOI, okay? Those are the two things to remember. Everything else could encompass operating expenses for the most part, all right? For just for your, your general knowledge and to understand so you get a better grasp. So hopefully now you guys understand the significance of NOI. NOI will then come to play with many of the different things I'm about to cover. The first of it, is called the cap rate, okay? A lot of you guys in the business use this term, have heard this term. Cap rate stands for capitalization rate, okay? Um, and what's the purpose of it? A cap rate is a rate at which you discount future income to determine an asset's current present value, okay? What does that mean? In practice, you will typically use a cap rate to express the relationship between a property's value and it's NOI, the net operating income for the current or coming year. You can use the cap rate formula to serve one of two most typical purposes, okay? Obviously, you can use it to calculate a property's cap rate, which we're talking about. You'll want to do so when, it's, when you actually know what the NOI is, okay? The GOI, the GSI, you can't calculate cap rate. You gotta know the NOI, the net operating income, to plug in this formula, okay? Um, and you also need to know uh, the purchase price, the value, or the seller's asking price. What you're really doing in this situation is finding out if the property exhibits a cap rate that is in line with other similar properties in the area if you purchase it at the asking price or the value that it's being offered at. Okay? If you know uh, what the appropriate cap rate is for the type of property in that area, then you can transpose the formula to calculate a reasonable estimate of value. So it's the opposite. So if you got the NOI and the cap rate, it can help you create a value of what the asset might be worth. So basic algebra says, these are three points we're going to talk about in the, uh, in the formula right here. 
So the formula for cap rate is cap rate equals NOI divided by the value of the asset. Okay? And if you, you went to school, hopefully you did if you're watching this, you know in basic algebra, cross multiplication, you need two out of the three items here in order to get what's missing, if you're lacking something. So if you want to know what the cap rate is, you got to know what the NOI value is, uh, the NOI is and the uh, value of the asset, what it's worth or what the asking is. If you don't know what the purchase price is, but you got the NOI and you can see what the market in the areas, what that cap rate is, then bam, you can calculate the value. Okay, if you, um, if you have the cap rate and the value, then you can also calculate your NOI. I'm not going to get into the algebra right now because I don't have enough time, but it's basically cross um, multiplication and division to find that value. Okay, you can also pull this up on Google, excuse me, on uh, yeah, Google, and you can see the exact formulations to, to interchange those things. But here's an example. Assuming... A property has an NOI of $30,000. If you buy it for a quarter million, you will be purchasing it at what cap rate? What's the cap rate if you have $30,000 of NOI and $250 acquisition price? So in this example, right, we know what the, the formula, the basic one was, is NOI divided by purchase price gives us that cap rate. The NOI here is $30,000 divided by $250,000. You get a 12% capitalization rate. Now, for those of you guys doing this on the calculator, probably most of you guys are, you're going to see if you divide 30 by 250, you're going to get a decimal, okay? Just hit times 100, and you're going to get a percentage. For those of you guys who are not that sophisticated, because um, I wasn't when I started, all right? So that's NOI. I spend a good deal of time on it. It's an important, uh, excuse me, cap rate that is affiliated to NOI. It's an important component that a lot of people use in the business. You're going to learn this word. You're going to hear this word. And that's what it means. Cash flow, okay? One of my most favorite, most exciting words of my life. Cash flow, okay? What is a cash flow? To calculate a property's cash flow in real estate, you simply take all the inflows, all your income, and subtract all that cash outflows during a relevant period of time. So money in, money out, what's left is your cash flow, okay? For the calculation of cash flow, it is irrelevant if the cash item is considered a taxable item or not, or whether cash outflows are tax deductible. So taxes has no indication or affiliation to just cash flow. Um, an example would be to uh, be the treatment of your mortgage payments. For cash flow purposes, the entire mortgage payment is counted, uh, is counted while for tax purposes, you can only deduct or use the interest portions uh, when you're deducting it in your taxes. Further, cash flow does not include depreciation expenses as they are not actual cash expenses. So that's another key thing to remember. So taxes and depreciation do not affect cash flow in uh, real estate. When you speak about cash flow, you usually mean cash flow before taxes, okay? So this is another key little ingredient. People talk about cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. This is really what you're saying. It's CFBT, Charlie, Frank, Boy, Tom. What is it? Cash flow before taxes means you're not taking into account the income um, after uh, paying any taxes. It's before taking any taxes into consideration, all right? That's your cash flow before taxes. Um, and there's also, you can add the word D to it, which is the depreciation. 
Okay? You can think of cash flow as an equivalent of the property's checkbook. checkbook. If an ac it accounts for all of the money that flows in and out at any given time. Inflows can include rent, loan proceeds, and interest on bank accounts. Outflows can include debt payments, operating expenses, and capital additions. Okay? So that's the definition of cash flow. If you're paying attention, now how do you calculate cash flow before taxes? The formula is very, very basic. You take the NOI, the net operating income, and then you subtract debt surface and cap X. Now, quickly, what is debt service? Debt service is implying or refers to your mortgage, okay? In specific, your mortgage on an annualized basis. So if your mortgage is $5,000 a month, whether it's interest, principal, doesn't make a difference. Five grand, you multiply it by 12, you get 60 grand. That's your debt service, okay, on an annualized basis. So you're gonna take your NOI, which is your net operating income on an annual basis, and you're gonna subtract your debt service. CAPEX is a short acronym for capital expenditures, okay? And this is usually done, CAPEX is usually done the first year you're acquiring a property, you want to rehab the building, give it a facelift, um, supply it to make it look better to be able to increase the rents, right? And short. And so there's expenses. It's outside of the normal operating expenses, your monthly regular costs for operating that site. CAPEX is like a one-time injection of money being spent um, to be able to enhance the site. So you're gonna deduct CAPEX as well. So you got NOI, minus debt service, minus CapEx, and that gives you your cash flow before paying any taxes, okay? So that's the formula. Let's jump in, give you a quick example, and then we're gonna have to uh, continue onward. So let's say you have a property that generates an NOI of $30,000 a year. The monthly mortgage payment of the property is $21.75 a month. You also decide to have a new flooring installed this year of uh, $2,500, so that's your CapEx. What is your cash flow before taxes? You take your net income, you subtract the 2175 times 12 to get your annual debt service, your ADS. In this case, it's 26 grand. You then subtract your CapEx, 2500, and then you get an actual cash flow before taxes of $1,400. It's very basic math if you know the formula and you understand the terms. Cash on cash return. What does that mean? So the definition of cash on cash is the ratio between a property's cash flow in a particular year, and again, before taxes, and the amount of the initial capital investment someone made to acquire that building, okay? So it's the down payment, it's the cash payment you made to buy that property. It is expressed as a percentage, all right? Although you can calculate the cash on cash return based on projections, for any future year, which people do, investors tend to look at this measurement as it relates to the expected cash flow in the first year of owning the property when they buy it. Since this calculation doesn't take into account any time value of money, it probably does not make sense to measure the cash flow that occurs soonest after you make the investment. So the cash on cash return is not a particularly powerful tool, but has always been popular as a quick read of an income property or in, to see if it's income producing, probably because it allows an easy comparison to the other types of investments. For example, you can say 
This property will give me a 6% cash return on my investment in the first year. If I invest the mutual fund instead, I'll only make 3%. You need to know about what you need to know about cash return because sooner or later, someone is going to offer you a property and is going to quote you this statistic as if you should be impressed. Cash flow is a good thing. And if the property actually has it, great. Just don't forget the other ways of really diving into income producing property. Now that was a definition we took online. I'm reading it to you, but let me explain to you something. Cash on cash return is a great indicator, all right? It's something I use on a daily with our team here at MTIP. Um, it's a valuable tool and I'm gonna show you guys the formula of how to calculate uh, cash on cash return, okay? So what you do is you take the annual cash flow, which we talked about in the previous segment, the entire amount of your cash flow, and you divide it by your, your, your cash investment, your initial cash investment, okay? The example to this, hopefully we've got a good one here for you, perfect. Let's say you purchase a property with a down payment of 20 grand. In the first full year of operation, the property shows a net operating income of $14,000. So you put 20 grand to buy this proposed building, all right? Doesn't matter what it's worth, doesn't matter how much you bought it for, you use 20 grand to put down to buy the building, okay? That's your cash investment. The NOI again is 14 grand. Your monthly mortgage payment is $1,000. You have no other items that affect your cash flow for that year. What in fact is then your cash on cash return that for that first year? So what you do is again, you take your, your uh, net operating income, right? And you have your debt service, 12 grand, and you subtract the two. So you get NOI minus uh, 12,000, that's that $1,000 a month times 12, and you get uh, 2,000 as a result, right? That's your, 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 your cash flow before taxes. NOI minus debt service. And then you take that 2,000 and you're dividing it by the $20,000 capital investment you made when you first bought it. So you take 2,000 divided by 20 and you get what? You're gonna get 10% as a return. That's your cash on cash return, okay? So this was a quick example of what cash on cash return means, what it is, how it works, uh, hopefully that's very valuable for you. We use it as a great indicator to know if a deal's a winner or a failure, like we do with cap rate. But as you clearly can see, if you've been watching and following me throughout this period, all of these terms, which are unique and different and very similar, they all go hand in hand in order to create or calculate um, some of the other uh, formulas and terms. So you have to know what GSI is, what GOI is, what NOI is, what all these terms mean in order to understand the other terms, okay? And I specifically kind of am going in this flow so that you guys can catch on and understand um, the, the, the different variable terms that we're talking about today in order. Um, so moving on, gross rent multiplier. Gross rent multiplier is something I don't use very often, but people use in the marketplace. It's like another type of indicator, market indicator, similar to a cap rate for a market to know what the, the average rate of return is for a property. By the way, as a side note, because I didn't mention this in cap rate and it just hit me. Cap rates, all right, in comparison to a, a, a cash on cash return, right? This is something that you guys 
people don't pay attention to, but I'm going to make clear. A cap rate, imagine if you, a building was worth a million dollars, okay? And they say the cap rate on it is 7%. If you took a million dollars cash and you dumped it into that asset, you'd make 7% on your money, okay? Imagine that's what cap rate means, if you bought it cash. In comparison, cash on cash return, all right, is if you leverage your money, okay? So if the same example, million bucks, if I went and put 20, 30% down, okay, let's say 200, $300,000 I put down on that million dollar acquisition, then my rate of return might actually be, will be higher than that 7% because I'm using less cash, I'm not spending a million, I'm using less cash to go and get that building, which then allows me to make a higher rate of return or cash on cash return. If I were to, if someone told you, you're putting a million dollars cash into a building, and they said the cap rate's 7%, then guess what? Your cash on cash is identically 7%. But the second you lever your money, leveraging your money, huge importance here, then you're gonna make a higher rate of return. The less you're able to put down, the higher your rate of return will be, period, in any deal you go into, especially commercial real estate. So that was a side note. I want to throw it in there because I was about to forget that. Going back to the GRM, the gross rent multiplier in this term, okay? It's a simple method by which uh, you can estimate the market value of income producing property. The GRM is a market driven measurement, all right? You can presume that if buyers have recently been paying X times gross income for properties in a certain location, then the market value of a property you are considering for purchase should work out to be the same, X times its gross income. And that's kind of the ratio. You're doing it based on the gross income. This measurement can serve as a useful precursor to a, a serious property analysis. However, for example, if you see that a property is offered for sale at a GRM significantly higher than what is typical in the market, you can expect that a detailed analysis is <coughs> excuse me, is probably not going to make this investment look any more appealing, except at a substantially lower price offering. So you can then decide if you want to spend the time doing the extra research and making projections in a case where the GRM warns you that the property is probably going to be greatly overpriced. So it's a quick, you know, without reading anymore, because it's a lot for this really simple term, it's an indicator. It's going to tell you in a quick class whether it's an overpriced deal or underpriced deal based on a market norm called this GRM. Okay, it's very similar to the uh, cap rate idea. It's in market indication. So how do you calculate gross rent multiplier? You take the market value of the asset and you divide it by the gross scheduled income. So we talked about it. First thing, GSI. You take the market value and you divide it by the GSI, gross scheduled income, and that's how you get your GRM, okay? Now, I'll give you an example of this. You find that five apartment buildings that have sold in the past six months, you did some comps, in the Upper West Side of town, okay? The sales data showed below. So you got one property, you got three properties. One at a sale price of 680, another one for about 1.1, another one for 950 and the gross scheduled incomes for each are listed for you. So what, what basically we're doing, right, is we're taking that scheduled income 
and we're dividing it by the sell value, right? If you go back to the formula, sorry, you're taking, I'm sorry, the market value and you're dividing it by the, the gross scheduled income. Quick mistake there, sorry. And you're going to get these percentages or these rates, seven, six, seven. So you want to, guys, want to remember this ratio when you do this math. You want to remember that if something's uh, under four or above 10 for a GRM, then something's fishy. It's a red flag, okay? So you ideally, in most markets, you want to be somewhere between a four and a 10 in GRM. And that, in essence, is what it is. Hopefully, you guys caught on. If not, rewatch this. Um, operating expense ratio. So let's read this one out. Operating expense ratio is the ratio of individual operating expenses or of the total operating expenses to the gross operating income. So what does that mean in layman terms quickly before I continue reading? It's a ratio, it's a percentage, right, of the expenses against the income in gross dollar values. Recall that the GOI is the revenue after taking the account of vacancy and credit loss. You think of GOI not as the amount that you ought to collect, but rather the amount you really collect. In the context of operating expense ratios that tell you how the money you spend to operate the building relates to the money you receive, okay? You can use a property's expense ratio to decide if the operation of a particular investment opportunity appears typical based on your knowledge, knowledge excuse me, of other similar properties. Again, it's another ratio, like the uh, GRM ratio, like the cap rate ratio, it's a percentage. This is another indicator that you can compare based on the gross operating income and uh, gross operating expenses, okay? These ratios can also alert you to possible problem areas, both in regards to how the property has been run and how, to ac how accurate uh, the seller's representations are when they're giving you information like the incomes and the expenses. It's important to look at the individual ratios of each operating expense and not just the ratio of the total expense. So that's a key indicator here. Remember, if you line out all of your expenses for a property, don't look at add them all up and just do the whole thing as an average. Make sure you look at each line item and look at the ratios. The total could be completely uh, could appear entirely plausible while some of the individual items on your list could raise red flags. So pay attention to that important key. So how do you calculate the operating expense ratio? All right. You take the operating expense and you divide it by the gross operating income. Okay. And that's how you get a percentage. And you want to look at those percentages throughout and as a whole. So here's an example. Your property has a gross operating income of $70,000. And expenses, operating expenses are as follows. So here are examples of some expenses. Insurance, property insurance, $7,000. Property taxes, $12,500. Repairs, $8,500. Supplies, $2,000. Utilities, $4,500. And miscellaneous, another $1,000. What is the operating expense ratio for each and for the total amount? So your gross operating income in this example is 70,000, okay? So you make a line item, each one of those items, those expenses, you list them out, which is what they did, okay? And you then do the division and you're gonna see the ratios listed for you. The total, okay, is 50%. So 
50% of your income is going out to expenses, okay? And that's your ratio. So if you make a dollar, you're making 50 cents. Really net is where you're going towards for your NOI, basically as a percentage. So another way of looking at it is basically taking your NOI, right? Uh, excuse me, your, your GOI, and subtracting it from all your expenses to then create that percentage ratio. That's what in essence, this is operating expense ratio. The topic we're talking about next is loan to value. This is a term that's used in the finance arena of real estate and that we, that is used almost in every single deal. All right. So, uh, loan to value, which also is LTV is a ratio. It's a percentage between the total amount of a property's mortgage financing and the uh, property's appraised value or the selling or asking price. Whichever is less, that's a key thing to remember. Whichever is less. So if a guy's asking for a million, but it appraises for 900, your LTV, the bank is gonna give you a loan based on LTV most likely, um, and it's gonna be whatever is less between those two amounts. Again, it's expressed as a percentage. If the selling price is indeed less than the appraised value, then again, I said this a second ago, the lender will base the LTV on that selling price. You will, you will be tempted to argue that you negotiated a terrific deal and that you're buying below market and that lender should use the higher appraised value to give you the LTV calculation. If you prevail, be sure to call a press conference because you'll be the first investor ever to win this argument in front of a bank. So again, if you buy a good deal, great, but understand that that value you're buying it at that's what they're going to assess your, uh, your LTV at. If you were to purchase a home, for example, as a personal residence, the maximum LTV, the most the bank would ever lend you on that property would typically be for 80% for what we call a conventional mortgage. Okay. To put this in another way, you can borrow 80% of the value or that purchase price million dollars. They'll give you a loan for 800,000. Private mortgage insurance and government programs such as FHA or the VA are available to help buyer, home buyers, making it possible for you to purchase homes with LTVs of up to almost 100%. So this is a huge advantage in residential real estate that we don't have in commercial real estate, we dream of, but for units, for single family homes and up to four units, which is residential, you can get loan offerings programs, right? Government backed loans of almost up to hundred percent finance, which means you put nothing down. Okay. Which is the dream of a dream. It's your entryway to get into owning a piece of real estate. Okay. A lot of people do it. A lot of people have gone from residential, jumped into commercial just on this point. It's not, uh, it's not, uh, what I would do. All right. But it's something you can do if you want to get through the ropes of learning. For investment property, however, you will often find that lenders expect you to invest uh, more equity. 80% is possible, but don't be surprised if the LTV, the loan to value requirement would be at 70% or even lower. So in commercial deals, they're going to probably get you to, to put more down, right? Which makes it so much more difficult for someone walking into the game to get into commercial real estate. But the truth is with creative financing, and this is not today's topic, but there's a lot of interesting ways to get around this loophole, the situation obstacle, excuse me, in the lending world. 
But that's something for you guys to understand. Resi, higher LTV, commercial, lower LTV. And LTV is key because that's eventually what you're going to be able to take out as a loan when you buy a property or when you refinance a property, which is something we love to do because it's tax-free money. All right. The, the banks, all right, there are two reasons, or at least two reasons why lenders want a lower LTV when financing an investment property. They don't want to have you take over, they don't want to have to take over your property in lieu of foreclosure and operate it while they try to sell it. And of course, they don't want to lose any money. And those are the reasons why they would probably mitigate the risk and give you a lower LTV. Now, how do you calculate LTV? It's very, very basic, all right? Loan to value is basically you take your loan amount, whatever they're gonna give you, and you're gonna divide it by the appraised value or the sale price or asking price of that property, whichever's lesser, to get that percentage, okay? So if you know what your loan amount is, you just divide it by the purchase price and you, then you can calculate your LTV. If a, guy's, if a bank says, we're willing to give you maximum 80% LTV because that's their criteria for this particular proposed deal and you know the deal's at $10 million, then you can say 80% of 10 million is 8 million bucks. That's gonna be my loan amount. And that's generally how you calculate your loan amount or vice versa, you calculate your LTV. Here's an example of it, just to be clear. You're purchasing an income property for half a million dollars. You will put down 150 grand and finance the rest. The bank's appraisal came in at 450, less than what you're purchasing it for. What is the LTV? So if you've been paying attention, you'll know that first, the, the formula, which is basic, you get, you need to know which is the value of the property. Is it the 450 or the 500? Hopefully you paid attention, you chose right, it's the 450. Okay, that's your value. The, the purchase price, excuse me, your down payment, uh, sorry, your loan amount, my mistake, um, is calculated by the difference of what you put down. So if you put $150,000 down and you're financing or you want to finance the difference, the reality is they will not give you uh, more than that $450,000 value. So you're going to have to take 150 and divide it by your purchase price or the down payment. I might be, I'm really getting, what is it? 300,000, excuse me, to get the loan to value ratio, which is the 350. So it's your loan amount is the 350. I blanked out and I apologize. So again, recapping, you put 150 grand down. You're trying to buy it for 500. They're only going to appraise it for 450. So 450 is your appraised value. The difference is that $350,000 loan amount, uh, which is what they're willing to give you. And your loan to value ratio is going to be 78%. So 78% of the value is what they're willing to give you as a loan. I'm sorry for the mishap. Hopefully you guys paid attention to that very basic thing. But uh, that in essence is loan to value. Okay. It's a very integral, important term that's used a lot in banking when you're trying to get a loan. Okay, moving on, break-even ratio, all right? This is also a critical term that a lot of uh, you guys either don't know or should know. So why you should know about the break-even ratio or the BER, boy Edward Robert, because it's a benchmark often used by lenders 
when underwriting commercial mortgages. Okay, it is used to estimate how vulnerable a property is to defaulting on its debt should rental income decline. Usually lenders look for a BER of 85% or less. Okay, if occupancy rates in a particular market are exceptionally low and your revenue is therefore a bit less certain, lenders may require a BER that is several percentage points less than the average occupancy rate. So basically the BER, the break even ratio is another measurement for the banks, for the lenders, for these underwriters, right? That's where the term comes from to evaluate or mitigate their risk to understand what their risk is when they're giving you that loan to buy that property. So how do you calculate the BER? You take your debt service, right? Your mortgage amount annualized and you add your operating expenses and then you divide it by your total gross operating income, your GOI. So again, debt service, mortgage, operating expenses, everything but your mortgage and expenses. You add them, and then you divide it by your GOI, your gross operating income, okay? Which is already taken into effect vacancy. Here's an example to explain this. You expect your first year of operating expenses to be $22,000 and your annual debt service, right? Your ADS to be $24,000. If your gross operating income is 57,500, what is your property's BER? So again, quickly, just to show you guys again, you take debt service, you add operating expenses and you divide it by your gross operating income, okay? In this case, your operating expenses are 22,000, your debt service is 24,000 and your gross operating income is 57,000. You plug in the numbers into your formula, you're going to get a break-even ratio of 80%. Okay? So again, that's an indicator. It's for the banks. It's another term. You now understand the formula. So when you speak to a bank or an underwriting team, you know what they're talking about. Okay? Now I'm going to cover my favorite, favorite fuck you term in real estate, and it's depreciation. All right? This is what inspired me to get into this game. Depreciation is a game changer for the rest of your life. If you ever tried to figure out how wealthy people avoid paying taxes and just keep getting richer, it's because of this term, it's depreciation, all right? So let me explain to you, those of you guys who don't understand what it is, what it actually means. Depreciation can also be called cost recovery, which is a tax deduction that property owners can claim every year until the asset's value is completely depreciated. In real estate, the buildings and the physical structures are the actual depreciable assets, not the land that's underneath them, just the building. This means that there is no, there's no depreciation allowances for any property that's just land. So if you buy a deal and it's just land, guess what? You can't depreciate it. So that's a red flag for you, for Mike Maccabi to you saying, don't fucking buy a piece of land and sit on it unless you're gonna develop it, build the structure, and depreciate that motherfucker down to the rim, all right? Two, the amount of depreciation deduction is determined each year and depends on the useful lifespan of the asset, okay? Which is specified in your area's tax code. A useful lifespan is different from the physical lifespan for the property. In the United States, the IRS defines the useful lifespan for residential property as around 27 and a half years for residential, right? So that's 
homes, condos, uh, as well as multifamily properties, apartment complexes. Doesn't matter how many units, in, in lender, in, excuse me, in um, banking terms, when you're trying to get a loan, they consider that, uh, uh, sorry, in front of the IRS, excuse me, they consider multifamily uh, residential. So that's 27 and a half years. In commercial, industrial, non-residential, it's 39 years for that building, okay? The depreciation of a property starts when it's placed into service, okay? So when buying an income-producing property that already exists, the time will start, this lifespan thing starts when title is signed over to your name. It does, has nothing to do with the age of the building. It start, the, the clock starts ticking in front of the IRS for all intensive purposes for tax deductions the second you start owning it. So a guy could have owned the building for 100 years, but he sold it to me, and he might have already fully depreciated the asset and has no more depreciation. But the second title transfers to me, I now own it, I now get 27 and a half years of depreciation or 39 years of depreciation, depending on what kind of asset I buy. The current tax code that is used in the US provides for a half month convention, which means that between the month you start using the asset and the month you stop using the asset, you are allowed to claim half of that month amount. An example of this would be buying a property during January and owning it and then using the property for the rest of the year. However, you can only claim 11 and a half months in depreciation allowance for the property during that single year. After the first year, you can hit it 12 months, every year thereafter. Look, that's a really, really clear-cut definition of it. The truth is, depreciation um, is, is an unbelievable thing that you guys all need to understand, like really dive into. So you need to know what your depreciable, uh, to get the formula of what, how to calculate depreciation is, you need to know what your depreciable basis is and you divide it by your useful life. Depreciable basis means what the value of your structure is, right? The actual asset, the building. Let's say it's worth a million bucks and it's a residential building. You take that million, you divide it by 27 and a half years and you get the amount of depreciation you can use in a single year, okay? And that's what you can tax deduct from your income. Here's an example, quickly. You purchase a commercial property in January, the building price is half a million and you attribute 390,000 of that building value to the building, of the property value to the building, and 100 and so to the land. What is the depreciation allowance for the, the whole year, the first year? This example is a little more intricate because it's talking about first year versus other years. Here's quick math. You take a million dollars for a residential asset, you divide it by 27 and a half years, you're gonna get about 36 or so thousand dollars. That's what you can deduct from your taxes at the end of the year. And you do that every year for 27 and a half years. Okay? It's mind-baffling, crazy. There's another segment we can talk about maybe at a different time cost, called uh, cost segregation or uh, accelerated depreciation, which actually lets you depreciate faster, 5, 10, 15 years, which makes that tax deduction even higher and eventually will make you avoid paying any taxes. What is a mortgage, right? What you guys hear about, what everybody buys their first home with, all right? A mortgage is something you're gonna typically encounter when you purchase an investment property with the aid of one or more mortgage loans. You give a, the lender, the bank, a lien, right? A right against the property 
and the lender gives you what we call a mortgage loan or note. The lender can be a bank, it could be an insurance company, it could be the owner of the property that you just bought it from, which really is what we call creative financing, or even another third party, private party, which really is used as the hard money lenders out there, that term, any one of these people can become the mortgage holder, right? Or the bank. You can have more than one mortgage. You can have multiple mortgages. And the first mortgage uh, is usually predominantly the better position mortgage. Then there's a second and etc. It's not uncommon to have multiple mortgages on an asset. What is uncommon is having a reputable financial institution be in a second position um, against someone that's, let's say, a private lender. Okay? You never, people that are lending you money don't want to be second in line to collect it in the event that you default. So that's something to pay attention to. The parties can structure a mortgage loan in a variety of ways. For example, you may pay interest only for a period of time, then the entire balance thereafter. Interest only followed by amortizing principal and interest payments or amortizing payments for a time followed by an early payoff or a balloon payment. Or alternatively, you can also do a fixed principal payment plus interest. By far the most common is the loan if excuse me, by far the most common is the loan that fully amortizes using a fixed periodic payment uh, structured plan combining both interest and principal over a specified time. For example, in home mortgages is probably that's the way they're probably doing it, right? They're amortizing your loan, usually typically over 30 years, which is very common. In commercial real estate, in comparison, loans are gonna be shorter terms. They're gonna be probably five years, three years, two years, max 10 years that they're, they're, they're set for. And also, in a lot of commercial deals compared to residential, a lot of people tend to focus on getting interest-only deals, right? I personally prefer getting loans from sellers, private uh, entities, third parties, doing what we call creative financing over going to a bank or an insurance company because it's just a whole lot less of headache um, and it's quicker to close and you probably are gonna get more flexible terms which means you can put less down uh, and you might pay a little more in interest in some cases but I will highly always recommend going to get owner-backed financing, what we call seller financing, creative financing in any given moment. And the second component is you're going to try to get that financing obviously at the lowest interest rate and you want to make sure that that interest rate is, uh, excuse me, that uh, loan payment is interest only. That's what I do because it then creates a structured schedule of income for the duration of owning it. You won't have like one month you're going to pay more towards your equity, another month you're not. It's just going to be, you know what you're getting every month. It's consistent when you want to sell the asset or perhaps even sell the note that comes with the asset. Uh, the next person buying it clearly understands what they're collecting every month. Um, I also don't like dumping my money in, as equity into a property. Okay. I believe in the simple concept that there is something called, uh, what's the word? Uh, not appreciation. Yeah, appreciation. But it's natural. It's the property is over time going to go and become more valuable because the rents go up, because uh, the cost of living goes up. So eventually property is going to be worth more. 
So I don't, if, if I bought a building for a million bucks, I don't necessarily care to pay down that million dollar note. I'd rather just see that million become two million and make that my benchmark and collect anything of equity that we have above that. That's just a side note for you guys to understand how I do my mortgages or I prefer to do a mortgage if I were to pursue one. Okay, so how do you calculate the mortgage payment? Uh, listen, the formula is in front of me. It's complex. There's mortgage calculators to do the amortized mortgages, which is the combination of principal and interest, okay? I'm not gonna explain it to you. It's too freaking complicated to explain right now on this uh, broadcast. The formula is in front of you guys, for those of you guys who are watching above me, but simple interest, all right, which is basically interest-only loans, is very simple, and I'm gonna explain it to you. Let's assume you buy a property for a million dollars, and your LTV is 80%. That's $800,000 is your loan amount. If the owner and you, which is who you're gonna go to to get the, the loan from, you agree on a 5% interest-only rate for a 10-year term, you're looking at interest payments for the year, your annual debt service, which we talked about, is gonna be $40,000. And that's basically the math. I took 800,000, I multiplied it by the interest-only rate of 5%, and I got my annual debt service, which is basically my mortgage amount due uh, on an annual basis. I prefer doing this basic math because I know the owner I'm talking to um, is probably gonna appreciate that simplicity in a negotiation than bringing out our calculator and going all spreadsheet on them or because they're not a bank and, and I'm not trying to make things more complicated for either of us. So my advice to you is, yeah, definitely you could learn how to calculate it. There's plenty of amortization, Morgan amortization calculations or formulas out there that you can pull and have readily available to you. But if you're going to go into negotiating with a property owner and even a bank, I would say this, stick to the basics. Just get interest only for the longest term possible, lock it in at the lowest rate possible, and boom, you, you just get your math there, okay? So that's in essence what a mortgage is. We use mortgages um, to basically collateralize property. And we particularly, I love using mortgages because the less money I need to put into a deal and enjoy the cash flow, the better. The higher my cash on cash return is, the higher my rate of return on my money is, all right? So mortgages, if you, if you know how to structure them correctly um, and you collateralize them correctly, you can leverage money in a responsible way and make exuberant amounts of returns uh, because of that mortgage. So it's definitely a great tool to have in your arsenal. Um, next topic, next term, taxable income, okay? What is taxable income? What is something that is actually taxed based on what you're making in real estate, all right? A property's taxable income is exactly what it means or it suggests. It's the amount of which you must pay federal income taxes on. Perhaps it would be more helpful to identify what taxable is not, okay? It's not your total rental income. It's not all the money you're bringing in. Not your income also after operating expenses. So it's not also, you're not your NOI. Don't assume you're going to get taxed on your net operating income either. And it's not your cash flow either, okay? So a lot of you guys think, oh, okay, I'm going to make $100,000 a year, whatever it is, on this asset, and that's what I'm going to pay taxes on. Eh, wrong. That's not how you calculate 
what's, what's considered your taxable income, okay? As far as real estate, like the rest of your, your life, it's basically based on whatever the tax code says. Cash flow, income, uh, sorry, taxable income begins with the property's revenue minus operating expenses, what you have come to know as the net operating income. From that point, unlike what we know or we learned about cash flow, the NOI is then reduced by everything you spend, but, e but either by everything the current tax code allows you to deduct, to deduct. For example, you cannot deduct your entire mortgage payment, but you can deduct your interest portion. So that's another reason I don't put money into my mortgage because it's not a tax write-off. What is a tax write-off, what I can deduct off my taxes, is the interest payments I pay on it. So that, that was just a side note for the previous thing we talked about, which is mortgages. You can also deduct depreciation and amortization, okay? So I had a, a funny uh, discussion with a friend. He said, when I buy a property, I can deduct my purchase price. I just bought it, I can write off the entire purchase price. You'd be wrong. In America, the only thing you can deduct is that depreciation and amortization, okay? That's all you can deduct when you make an acquisition. However, um, if you take what we talked about in depreciation, take the, the portion of the property, it's the building, not the land, you can write off that portion over what the tax code calls the useful life, which we described in depreciation. This write-off is called depreciation. It, if you make uh, an addition or capital improvement to the property, that too is considered uh, a write-off through depreciation. Another item you must, that must be deducted over time instead of when it's actually spent is the premium you paid for obtaining a mortgage, so what we call points. Lenders, bankers, they'll charge you percentage points to actually generate a deal, okay? And those things you gotta subsidize just like the depreciation that happens over time this type of expense also, you amortize over time and you deduct over time. So how do you calculate what's taxable income? You take your net operating income, your NOI, you subtract your mortgage insurance, not your mortgage, but the interest payment on that mortgage. You subtract your depreciation, which we talked about over the course of the 27 or 39 years, whatever that annual amount is, and you subtract uh, amortization points, which we talked about is what lead generate, uh, excuse me, um, banks generate or charge to structure that loan for you. Okay. That's how you calculate taxable income. A quick example is you purchase a small apartment building for 280. You take out a 20 year mortgage and you pay two points to obtain the loan. Your NOI is $30,000 and your mortgage interest for that year is $20,000. You make no capital additions to the property. What do you estimate your taxable income to be? So based on the math we talked about, you, you identify what your NOI is, what your mortgage insurance is, depreciation, your loan and your loan term, and then you calculate your taxable income to be $1,981, okay? You can always plug in the numbers, the formulas there for you. It's very basic, but now you guys at least have a better indication of what you're actually taxed on. Um, and I would highly recommend that you talk to your accountants to be specific, but that's a general scope of how that works. And we're talking, the next term we're talking about is return on equity, okay? There was return on investment, ROI is an example. 
return on equity is a similar term um, that we're going to talk about. And here's its definition. There are two ways of approaching the topic of return of equity, on equity, excuse me, ROE, as it applies to real estate investments. In each of them, return has the same meaning as cash flow after taxes. So we talked about cash flow before taxes. Now there's also cash flow after taxes. What differs is the meaning of, uh, of equity in the word. In the traditional method, the equity is the initial cash investment you made when you bought a property. This is then very similar to the cash on cash return calculation we did from before, with the difference of cash flow before taxes uh, being mentioned in that particular calculation. In the alternative uh, technique, it is your initial cash plus the additional equity that has built up due to the amortization of the mortgage and the increase in the value of the property over time. The ROE is expressed as a percentage, okay? Just like cash on cash return. And typically is calculated for the first year only. However, it can tell something in, some interesting information in the following years as well. So how to calculate the ROE, the return on equity. You basically take your cash flow after taxes and you divide it by your initial cash investment. So what that means is we talked about cash, uh, excuse me, cash flow before taxes. This is cash flow after taxes. So whatever your cash flow calculation was, basically that was before you took into consideration your depreciation, your taxable items, and now you're left with this nugget, whatever you have after tax taxes. That amount is what you take and you divide by your down payment, your equity, which you first put initially in that deal to then calculate your return on equity, okay? So we'll try to give you a quick example. You purchase a property with $100,000 down the first year. Your cash flow after taxes is $9,000. What is your return on equity? So you take your down payment and your $9,000 and you get a calculation of 9% is the return on equity. It's very similar to uh, your cash on cash, what we did before, or cap rate. So hopefully that summarizes return on equity. You guys get this quick, easy, very simple term. Going to move forward to what we call the profitability index, okay? There's another interesting term that maybe some of you guys have never even heard about. The profitability index, the PI, is similar to the NPV, net present value, which we're going to talk about in a second. It's a method to measure the return on an investment. When calculating NPV, the purchase price is subtracted from the asset's present value, the PV, of future cash flows. Okay, that's a little fucking perplexed. Even for me, it's a tongue twister. But it means if this, the number is zero or a number is positive, then you have exceeded or equaled the rate of return that is required, what we call your discount rate, your rate of return your desired rate of return. The profitability index instead calculates the ratio between the initial investment and the present value of future cash flows. If the initial investment and the present value of future cash flow are e exactly equal, then the index is one. This means that with a PI of one, your investment achieves exactly the rate of return that you had targeted for, or simply that your internal rate of return, your IRR, which we didn't talk about, it's another very, very important term, equals your desired discount rate, your desired goal uh, in the calculation of its present value. 
If it is above one, you have exceeded the rate of return goal, right? So if you get managed to get a higher number, then you're making more than you actually desired to make in the beginning. This means that you have not reached the goal and your internal rate of return is lower than your discount rate, okay? The profitability index makes it easier to compare properties that have a different purchase price. This is because the profitability index is a ratio, a percentage, showing us each investment's portion of the dollar that is returned versus the dollar invested initially, okay? So how to calculate profitability index? You take the present value of future cash flows and you divide that by your initial cash investment, okay? Hopefully our example could better articulate this. It, it's, a, it's a tongue twister, it's a little more complicated for those of you guys who've been paying attention, it's probably more of our progressive terms to learn but I thought I'd throw it in there as well. You expect to purchase, in this example, you expect to purchase a property using a $75,000 cash investment, your down payment, and you forecast that you will have the, flowing, the following cash flows. So you break it down for the next five years. You make 700 cash flows first year, 900 second year, 1,150 third year, all the way up to 1,500 your fifth year. You also estimate that the sale of your five properties, sorry, sale of your property five years from now will be at 125,000, okay? You better, you, you believe that your investment capital should receive an 11.5% annual return. So that's your discount rate. 11.5% is where you wanna make on your money over the next so much period of time. So you choose to, to discount all future cash flows at that rate. So that's your desired rate of return for every year for the next five years. What is the discounted cash flow and the profitability index of this investment based on that? So again, recap, you take your present value of future cash flows and you divide it by the initial cash flow investment and your purchase price is 75, your discount rate is 11.5% and your sale price is 125. You take a cash flow chart, you build out each of your incomes for that year, uh, which is clearly outlined here and you see what your present values are for each line item to then get a present value for all of them at the very bottom, which in this case is $76,000 or so. So this is a, uh, an interesting uh, indicator to then get you the profitability index, which is 1.02. So that basically says you're, you're, you're making what you're, you said or desired to make, which was that 11.5%, but uh, your internal rate of return is not there yet, so it takes time to get to that point. At the end of it, you will get to that point and then some. So that was profitability index. I'm going to leave you guys with uh, net present value. And this is the last term we're going to cover today. Uh, and I appreciate, for those of you guys who stuck around to this point, I appreciate you guys listening. And uh, hopefully, again, this is valuable content for you guys to learn from. So let's say you require a 10.5% uh, rate of return on your investment, okay? When you discount all the expected future cash flows back at that rate, then the present value that you find as, an, as your answer is the amount of cash you need to invest at the 10.5% to achieve those future cash flows with exactly the same timing and amount that you had predicted. So what does that mean? So let's say you want to make 10% or in this case 10.5% on your money. You can invest $100,000 is what you're saying, but you want to calculate whether that $100,000 is sufficient in that particular transaction 
in order to attain that 10% return over the course of your investment. So by playing with the down payment amount and the, the attributes of the deal, you'll be able to see whether or not that initial cash investment can actually get you that 10% or 10.5% return. That's what it does. The discount cash flow analysis tells you what the future cash flows are worth at a given rate of return, but that isn't necessarily how much you're going to pay for them. This is where NPV, net present value, comes in. Net present value is the difference between the present value of all future cash flows and the amount of cash you invest to purchase those cash flows, what you put in initially. That's why it's called net present value. Hopefully that makes sense. If you invest exactly what the future cash flows are worth at a given discount rate, your rate of return, right? Discount rate, rate of return. Then your investment is earning exactly that rate. If the present value of the cash flow is greater than the amount of your investment, you have a pet, excuse me, what we call a positive net present value, which is another way of saying that you're doing uh, better than the specified rate of return that you wanted because you're getting more than you expected from your investment. If, however, the PV, the present value of the, the cash flows is less than the amount of your investment, then you're going to get a negative NPV. That means that you're not doing as well as you uh, specified as a rate of return when you initially started. A term closely related to NPV is that profitability index we just spoke about a moment ago. So how do you calculate net present value? Okay, Net present value equals the present value of future cash flows minus your initial cash investment, that equity you put down. Okay, So an example to this, we're going to try to do one and we're going to end, call it a, a quits for the day. Uh, let's say you expect to purchase a property using a $75,000 cash investment and you forecast, right? you project that you will have the following cash flows over the next five years, 700 all the way up to 1500 in year five. You also estimate that the sale of your property five years down the line will produce you that 125. This is very similar to the previous example. You believe your investment capital should achieve 11.5% return on an annual basis. That's what your goal is. You want to make 11.5%. So you choose to discount that, meaning you choose to choose that rate for all of your cash flows for the next five years. 